Greetings again everyone, Andy Dukes here and the warmest of welcomes to Ride and Talk, the BMW Motorrad podcast. Thanks for joining. By now you'll be familiar with the hashtags Never Stop Challenging and Make Life a Ride, but if you're looking for someone who truly embodies these qualities, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better example than Michael Martin. To some, he's a motorcycle adventurer. To others, he's a photographer, geographer, author, documentary producer and a speaker at global climate change conferences. To me, he's one of the most interesting blokes I've spoken to over the years, and it was his stunning pictures from his many expeditions to the most remote places on Earth that inspired me to get out on my own bike in search of adventure. The world's changed beyond all recognition in the four decades he's been exploring its expanses. But one thing has remained constant. His preferred method of travel to take him and all his equipment close to the stunning landscapes, the wonders of nature, and even the people living life on the edges of existence. You guessed it, he rides a BMW bike and he wouldn't have it any other way. I recently tracked him down, remotely of course, not in the desert this time, but in picturesque Bavaria. Let's meet him now. Well, good morning, Michael. Welcome to Ride and Talk. It's great to finally have you as a guest on the show. Hello. Good morning, Andy. So whenever I hear the word desert, I always think of you, Michael. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I, I'm the desert man. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as someone who grew up in beautiful Bavaria, what attracted you to these uncomfortable and challenging extremes of heat and cold? I think it was the big contrast between Green Bavaria and the desert areas. I was 17 I was driving to Morocco, to southern Morocco, with my moped to see the stars. I was a hobby, hobby astronomer, and that was the reason I went to South Morocco um, for astronomy. And it was my first contact with desert, and it was so impressive. The landscape was so different. The colors were El Dorado for photographer. I am a geographer, and it's very interesting for a geographer to see the desert without all the vegetation, without all the men who changed our landscapes in Europe so much. So the desert tells you a lot about the Earth history, and it's a big adventure to travel in the desert, and all motorbikers are looking for adventure. Absolutely, adventure, it's what it's all about. And of course, you've seen so much, so many different places in the world where would you say is the place that has amazed you most you know literally taking your breath away oh god i did 300 journeys in my life and saw saw such uh, so many beautiful landscapes but if i would choose a country i can mention two countries one is in africa it's or let's mention three countries two in africa one is namibia in southwestern africa the nani desert is incredibly beautiful and it's Mali, Mali in southern Sahara. Unfortunately, no-go area nowadays, but it's so uh, interesting by the people, different tribes and a lot of culture. And in South America, it's Bolivia. It's the Altiplano in Bolivia, the high areas, four, four and a half thousand meters high, um, lagunas, salt lakes and active volcanoes. Yeah, I've seen a lot of photos um, from that particular desert in Bolivia, and it's definitely on my bucket list now. You've taken thousands of photographs of environments that are rarely visited and seen by the outside world, and shown many of them, of course, in your lecture tours and presentations. If you can, 
I'm trying to find out which photograph you're most proud of and what the story was behind it. I think I did in my life 10 or maximum 20 photographs which I really love, which are really impressive. I remember a portrait of a young boy in Mali. I met 1985 and uh, he asked me to follow him for a piscine, he told me, a swimming pool somewhere in the desert and I couldn't believe him. I followed him and I followed him for one hour through the mountains and then we saw really a natural basin, a natural swimming pool and he was standing in the water. I had only a little camera with me but the light was perfect, the boy was perfect, in perfect shape and it's one of my most impressive Photos, Or I remember a girl in Egypt with a bird in her hand. It's such a peaceful photo. So there are some special situations, light, landscape, people. I will remember all my life. And that's the most impressive photos. They will last, hopefully, longer than me. I'm sure they will. And uh, I didn't think you'd be able to answer that. But thanks for uh, digging those out of your memories. Now, you just you strike me as a very determined person. And I love the fact that you chose a motorcycle to explore some of the most inhospitable environments on the planet. It would have been much easier on four wheels rather than two, wouldn't it, with all the gear you need to carry? But I guess that would get in the way of the adventure, wouldn't it? Honestly, you are absolutely right. Uh, because I have so much luggage, all the camera equipment, I have so many distances, you need so much water, so you need so much um, petrol. So it's not real, there's not really a good reason driving a motorbike in the desert. But on the other hand, it's a great feeling. It's to, to feel the wind, to feel the changing of temperatures, to, feel, to smell different, uh, how, how landscape is smelling, yeah? And, um, and you are more closer to the people. If you come with a motorbike in a village somewhere in Mali or somewhere in Bolivia or in Afghanistan, people gather and ask you and help you, support you. That's completely different if you come in by a 4x4 four four car where there is not so much contact. And so the motorbike was a cultural bridge. It helped me to get in touch with people. That's, that I love most riding motorbikes in other countries, but you are absolutely right. It's, it's very exhausting and it's not a good idea for a professional photographer to do this. I don't know any other photographer who, uh, who rides on a motorbike professionally um, because it's so exhausting. Yeah, well, you've never taken the easy route in life, but, but you must be one of BMW Motorrad's longest serving partners. How did you first persuade them to lend you a bike all those years ago? I think back in the early 90s, was it? Yes, it started in 1991 and the Sahara was locked down because of a war. And I was thinking about a new mode of travel because I knew that East Africa and Southern Africa is not so adventurous as the Sahara. So I was thinking about a motorbike, but I had no experience. After driving license, I never drove one kilometer on a motorbike and I had no motorbike. And so I wrote a letter, um, a nice letter to Mr. Geisenhofer, uh, one of the uh, members of a great team of BMW Motorrad in Munich. And he read my letter and I don't know why. He answered me and offered me free R 
100GS for three months. And so we got the free bikes and started our first motorbike adventure in 1991. And now, after nearly 30 years, the corporation is still alive. That's amazing. I mean, it must have been a risk on their side to let some crazy guy from Bavaria go literally where no Westerner had gone before on two wheels. Yeah, he trusted me. Yeah, he trusted me, but I couldn't trust myself because we had no experience. And it was really a big challenge to get the free bikes out of the garage and to get them to the airport in Munich because we had no experience. And so I learned driving a motorbike in Africa. That's not a bad idea because there's not so much traffic and um, you learn the right things. Yeah, I don't drive motorbike in Europe. I don't drive any kilometer in Germany. I only drive overseas and the challenges are different there. There's no, no, exit, no danger of accidents. It's the danger of uh, the challenges of sand, of ice, of snow, of loneliness. It's different. So I'm an overseas biker. I am a desert biker. Yeah, I've seen old pictures of you in hot, arid regions and also, like you say, in freezing ice deserts, always on what looked, to me at least, completely overloaded motorcycles. So how much did you trust in the build quality of those GS bikes when you must have, <laughs> must have been seriously pushing those maximum weight limits? I trust a lot, yeah, that's right. And um, I'm not so well organized with packing, that's true. And I have so much camera equipment. I have seven or eight lenses. I have two cameras. I have two video cameras. I have two tripods. That's all overloads the bike. And I have to carry a lot of petrol, a lot of water. And sometimes I had a, a, my girlfriend, my former girlfriend, or my wife, Ali, is driving with me on a motorbike. And so we are really overloaded. But mm, over the years... I learned to handle a 500 kilogram bike in the sand. You need speed, 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 speed. Um, if you if you uh, go too slow, you lose. Uh, just saying those two words together, 500 kilograms and motorcycle makes me laugh. And and of course, you've had, I think, 100 GS, uh, 1100, 1150, 1200 GS, adventure. Did you modify them much for your travels? In the first years, I... Um, didn't modify anything, but the problem was uh, the tank was so small. Then uh, Touratech appeared on the market and gave me a big tank. They gave me some equipment parts, but after the collapse of Touratech, the corporation was over. In the last years, I used original BMW bikes um, because the Adventure version is so well equipped. The boxes are done by BMW and all the stuff you, you don't need anymore for an adventure. And I, do, I don't think a, um, a motorbike should be a Christmas tree. Yeah, I see sometimes motorbikes overloaded with extra lamps and stuff. And that's too heavy and too expensive. You don't need this stuff. I totally agree with you, yeah. But we've all made the mistake, I think, in the past. I mean, I know I've I've dropped a fully loaded GS in the heat of the desert and in the cold snow of the mountains several times, in fact. But And from personal experience, this can be physically and mentally exhausting. 
But how did you get your mindset right for a journey across, say, the Sahara Desert when this is going to happen all the time? I bet your sand riding skills have improved over the years, Michael. I wouldn't do this journeys without um, a mission. My mission is taking photos, getting stories, and to present the stories and the photos in books, lectures, and TV films. And that's a big mission for me. Yeah? That, that helps me. And I think I wouldn't get up at four o'clock in the morning uh, for climbing a dune or climbing a mountain in the coldness. I wouldn't do it without this mission. And um, yeah, and physically I'm quite tough and I'm very lucky. Yeah? Had no big accident until now. And I can handle it. My partners sometimes are really exhausted. On an adventurous day, you all have, always have periods which are not so exhausting, where you can ride the bike for an hour without problems, and you can support yourself by heating clothes, by good equipment, and after a bad situation, a good situation follows in normal ways. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it, and of course, getting your mindset right is important. I think one of the things that I found difficult to deal with at times is isolation. I think the most isolated I ever felt was in the Australian outback, where one day I, I hadn't seen another person for about six hours and I only had those wedge-tailed eagles for company, you know, the ones that always soar above you whenever you stop the bike for, <laughs> for a rest. Where would you say is the place where you felt most isolated from your fellow humans? Indeed, it's Australia also. Australia is a well-developed country, but there are some re really lonely parts. And if you cross um, the remote areas of Simpson Desert, or if you go the Cannon Stuck Road in Western Australia, you don't meet anybody for days. I remember the Gary Highway, um, or the Kids Kitson Track, that's a bomb road built for, uh, rocket, uh, for rocket testing in the 60s. And this... Um, Roads, not really roads, yeah, dirt roads are extremely loaded, um, extremely lonely. And if you ride with roads, you feel really free. But it's true, you are alone. And I would never ride with roads without a satellite telephone because there's no GSM coverage, yeah. And in other parts of the world, the deserts are not so lonely. Even in Sahara, there's a lot of traffic, refugees, smugglers, uh, caravans. Um, you meet um, small villages. And the GPS changed everything. Because nowadays I know where's the next point I could get support. In the 80s, early 90s, we had no GPS. And I felt really lonely. But with the GPS... And with a satellite telephone, it helps a lot. Yeah. So, so in the early days, back in the 80s, like you say, did, how did you navigate? Did you just use paper maps or did you ever get completely lost somewhere? Yeah, no, no, I never get lost. I had really good maps in Sahara deserts, um, EGN maps or um, pilot maps. And um, the problem was you have to compare the landscape with the map. And had a lot of discussions with my friends. Is the mountain in the distance really the mountains I see on the map? You never know you're really in reality. Yeah? And nowadays you have your GPS 
position and you know where you are and you know which direction you have to go and that helps so much. But the other thing is the security. The security in the 80s and 90s was much better. Now we have a lot of support by satellite telephone, by GPS, but there's a really security problem in a lot of countries. For example, Sahara is absolutely no-go area. And you have other challenges today. And so you have to check the internet for the security situation somewhere in the Himalayas or somewhere in Central Asia or in Africa. Yeah, understand safety is always a big issue. But of course, there's the other side of that where the kindness of strangers makes a complete difference to wherever you're going and, and the experience you're having. And I just wanted to, to ask you, have you had situations throughout your travels? Because what surprised me is what you can be in the middle of nowhere and stop your bike and then people just suddenly appear almost as if from nowhere. And it happens time and time again. And these are people that are often there to help you or give you something or or just want to speak to you. Do you, do you have uh, any stories of, you know, getting yourself, well, where local people have come and, and uh, helped you or found you or supported you in some way? I got a lot of support by people who showed me the direction, who gave me petrol, who um, gave me some fresh fruits. You, you have so good experience all over the world. I met some uh, oil engineers at Saudi Arabia at the oil station who's, who, who offered me fresh fruits in the middle of a desert or um, lorry drivers in um, Afghanistan offered me free petrol. Um, all your experiences, nearly all your experiences are good all over the world. There's a small, a very, very small part of people in the world who are dangerous. And the challenge is to get the feeling who is dangerous and who is a good guy, good or bad guys. And 99% are good guys. And you must, uh, be, be, you must be sensitive to check who is a bad guy. But you feel it. You feel it. And um, so I inform by internet. Some areas I avoid absolutely. And there are some areas which are safe, but also in the safe area, you can meet bad guys. And I, I'm, I, I try to, to keep away from these guys. Yeah? And so over the years, you get a feeling for it. And in the 40 years of traveling now, 300, 300 travels, I had only four or five bad situations uh, with rebels, with drunken soldiers, um, really dangerous situations or truck smugglers in Iran. I was hit by, I was in, the, in, a, in a battle between truck smugglers and Iran police. That was not really funny, but it's really, really, really rare, such situations. And since I'm traveling in Arctic and Antarctic, it's, all, it's safe anyway, because Arctic is 100% safe. Yeah, that's good to know. And of course, like you say, experience teaches you when to avoid a particular situation. But of course, there are certain things you can't avoid, like the extremes of heat and cold. You mentioned the Arctic then. What would you say are the coldest conditions and also the hottest conditions you've ever ridden in? The answer is 50 to 50. 50 minus Celsius, 50 plus Celsius. Minus 50 
Celsius I had in Mongolia, in winter Mongolia in January, in Ulaanbaatar. It was 49 minus and we were, I was traveling on a bike through Gobi Desert. And the other minus 50 was in Dempster Highway in um, northern Canada. I was starting in Dawson City, heading the Arctic Ocean. And this Dempster Highway is 700 kilometers. And if you drive there in February, it's a big challenge. Not only the cold, it's also the icy road you must handle. And plus 50, I had in Sahara, in Mauritania, and in Djibouti. Wow. So in the minus 50, did you have spikes on your tires? or Absolutely. Without spikes, um, not possible. But the spikes only help on ice, on frozen lakes, on frozen ocean. ocean. The bikes help a lot. But on snow surface, if the highway or the um, dirt road is covered by deep snow, it doesn't help. Because you get no grip and that's the big challenge to drive in pressed snow where the spikes can't hit the ice and the, um, I had these conditions also in Mongolia uh, but fortunately in Mongolia the snow was so it was a powder out of powder and my tires went through the snow down to the earth and got a grip on earth I didn't need spikes, but on snow-covered roads with pressed snow, it's really bad. You can't go maximum 40, 50 kilometers an hour, and if you push your bike too much, the back of a rear tire uh, drifts away. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine, really. And keeping yourself warm, what kind of... Are you wearing heated clothing all over your body, or...? Yeah, I got heated clothing by Turatech, um, under trouser and a jacket. That helps a lot. I got uh, heated handkerchiefs and um, I got um, heated um, pieces for shoes and good clothes. Really, not only motorbike clothes. Over the motorbike clothes, I got a down jacket, another down jacket, a down trouser. And the most important thing, go slow. If you go faster than 40 or 50 kilometers an hour, the chill factor is too much. You can't handle it anymore, also with heated clothes. Right, okay. But what about the bikes also? What, what effect do these really cold and really hot temperatures have on them? The bikes handle the coldness very good and the heat as well. The only problem in the cold is the battery. The batteries of motorbikes are too small, much too small for the cold. And so you have, um, you need a jump start, uh, cable to handle it. If you don't have a jump start cable, sometimes I try to, to push the bike, but that doesn't work. Then you use other car with a raw, with a rope. That's really dangerous to, to draw the bike through the snow and to try to get started like this it's nearly impossible and dangerous i can't recommend it and if all these things are not working the lorry drivers in himalaya or the lorry drivers in mongolia they heat your bike or their own cars by fire 
by fire and and then they, they cover the bike with a big blanket and make fire and so we get a small atmosphere and that heats the bike and after an hour it starts. Yeah? Sometimes I interrupted the night five, six times, get up every hour and start the bike again so it doesn't get really cold and it was more convenient to get up five times in the night than um, losing an hour or two hours in the morning because the bike doesn't start. What about heat? Um, the cooling of the motorbikes, of all modern motorbikes nowadays, is so perfect. Water-cooled or air-cooled, it doesn't matter. Yeah? The, I never had a problem with cooling. In the former 80s, I had a lot of cooking water uh, in my radiator by cars, by the Peugeots or Volkswagen, or these cars were cooking. Yeah? Now I think um, the bikes are much, they, are, they are have stronger motors like a car, uh, and they are not so heavy like a car, and they have only two wheels. And so it's easier for a bike to drive in the sand, and they don't get so hot like a car. Yeah, yeah, understood. It's great to know that you can rely on on the bikes, on on the uh, technology, and the uh, you know the engine technology. But, but what about your camera equipment? Because I guess digital and battery technology has improved massively over the years. I mean, and the old days of you know camera film breaking inside your camera due to the colder and now a distant memory. Yes, in the former years, I lost a lot of films by heat, by X-ray, and by cold because the dry coldness um, breaks your film uh, at the Altiplano for example um, and nowadays it's easy it's really easy because the cameras the professional cameras handle the cold easily I shoot 50 degree minus and I have no problem even the batteries have no problem Professional cameras have big batteries, and big batteries can handle the cold. So, um, if you use a, a consumer camera, you will get problems under minus 20. So, it's a good idea to keep a second battery in your pocket. And, uh, but the most big challenge, the biggest challenge of cold is the warmness of tents, huts, and cars. Never put a camera from a cold from a cold to the warm. Then you get a lot of humidity on the lens, between the lenses and on the sensor. And you don't lose this um, water between the lenses anymore and you have to get a service. Which you can't do in the middle of nowhere. No. So, yeah, condensation is... Uh, condensation is a friend. big challenge. Yeah? And, um, but all in all, um, I don't care much about... Um, the bike and I don't care much about the camera because I have a perfect bike I have a perfect camera and the electronic is so reliable nowadays yeah it, it works it just works the, the, I have to care about myself and not about my bike yeah that's good so you're a popular speaker at global climate change conferences how have you seen these desert environments change in just the past three decades that you've been exploring them two things it's a climate change and it's a desertification the climate change doesn't make deserts more dry that's nonsense 
because warmer air gets more humidity. humidity. Um, but the rain seasons, you can't rely on the rain seasons anymore. They are shorter, they are later, they are earlier, uh, and they destroy a lot. So the climate change um, doesn't make the deserts drier, but it's different, it's different. And the nomads um, depend on the rain, but they can't depend anymore of the time and uh, the time, yes. And the other big challenge in deserts is called desertification. The deserts are growing worldwide, not because of the climate change. They grow because of the people about their goats, about their cows and sheep. There are so many people, uh, the population in Mali, in Niger, Mauritania doubles every 30 years. And the number of animals also gets bigger and bigger. And these animals destroy everything. And so the desert is growing at the edge of a desert. At Southern Sahara, Northern Sahara, the desert is growing and growing. And with desertification, it's a big challenge in all desert areas, not in the desert itself, at the edge of a desert. Yeah, understood. Do you also feel that deserts should be better protected against things like weapons testing, oil exploration, for example? Yeah, it's a pity. Deserts have no lawyer, have nobody who cares about this. Greenpeace cares about the rainforest or um, also the whales or the oceans have a lot of support, fortunately, by organizations. And nobody cares about desert because deserts are the place where we get our oil, where we test atom bombs, uh, nuclear bombs. And um, I try to, to build up a lobby for deserts. I try to show people, to tell people how beautiful deserts are. They are part of our nature and they must be protected. And that's a part of my work. Brilliant. Now you once told me that another one of your aims is to inspire people to see the world. Do you still feel like a motorcycle is the best tool for doing this? I think a motorbike attracts a lot of people in the countries itself, so I get in touch with people more easy, and the motorbike attracts also a lot of auditorium in Europe. And if the people are in, in the city hall and listen to my lectures, I can... Um, I don't talk only about motorbikes, that's boring. Uh, I talk about geography, about ecology. I, I try to, to transport content in my lectures, in my books, in my films, yeah? And the motorbike is a medium, is a is the way to do it, that's all. Yeah, understand that. Have your travels changed the way you see your home country and Europe in general? Oh, yeah. I love it so much, my home country. Come to Bavaria and you believe me, it's so beautiful to be at home. I'm living in the most beautiful part of Germany, in Oberbayern, yeah? and it's after our interview, I will go out and at the lakes and have a swim and walking along the shore. It's so beautiful. And but I, it's not only the nature. I appreciate also the safety in our countries. I appreciate uh, the liberty of press, uh, the justice. 
um, how we treat men and women on the same level, yeah? And I really, or we all, we all are really lucky to be born in America or in Europe. Uh, if you are born in Mali, Niger, um, Venezuela, the life is much more challenged. Yeah, we're very fortunate, that's for sure. Now, the last time we spoke, uh, probably about six years ago, you were working on your last book, Extreme Earth, which is probably the heaviest book that I own. Um, <laughs> tell us about your latest book that you're working on. I'm still working. It's not yet published. It will be published um, 2000, uh, 2021. And um, it's called Terra. And after all the years in deserts, after the year in Arctic and Antarctic, I try to do a portrait of our planet to show how special, how beautiful, how unique our planet Earth is. And I'm also traveling now in rainforests, in Amazonas Basin. I'm traveling in the Andes, in the Himalayas, in the steppes of Mongolia. I'm traveling in the savannas of East Africa. I do around 30 journeys. Half of the journeys are done by motorbike. And I was ready by 80%. I was nearly ready when the lockdown came in March. Uh, I was in Siberia middle of March and when all in the countries the lockdown was starting I was very lucky to get home uh, the last day um, um, which was possible in Russia and since this time I'm at home I'm stuck at home I can go to the mountains do a lot of um, mountaineering I I'm writing a lot of for my book we do the artwork for the book we do the cutting of the films but now I get really impatient and I want to get out of Europe and I want to travel again. And I hope in the late or in the late summer I can start again. Yep, totally get that itchy feet. I know it well. Final question, Michael. Is there a place in the world that you still yearn to visit? You know, a dot on the map that you haven't explored yet? A challenge you still have to complete? Hmm, that gets really difficult. Before I started Terra, there were a lot of places. But now I visited all these places, really special places. And um, perhaps I, in the next project, in some years, I will start in Elsmere Island, a very special island in northeast Canada, the northernmost big island on Earth. Very, very lonely, but it's really hard to get there. And so the, the destinations get more strange and more strange. I want to see untouched, lonely countries. And nowadays, we go to the countries I was in the 80s. This countries changed a lot, and I'm no more interested in. And so I think the Earth is big enough, interesting enough. I can travel until 1995. You'll be a lucky man if you do. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> it's been a pleasure as always talking to you. So thanks for being our guest on Ride and Talk today. I hope we see each other again soon, perhaps in 2021 at BMW Motorrad Days. Yes, I hope so. It will. I will be there. Take care now, Michael. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, Andy. Nice Sunday. Bye-bye. Thanks, Michael. Keep working on those projects. 
as the messages are now more important than ever. And keep writing too, but be careful on that ice. I'm afraid to say it's getting thinner all the time. Well, that's it from myself and from Michael. I hope you enjoyed listening to his stories. We've got lots more where that came from, of course. So keep checking in with us on Ride and Talk for new motorcycle content. Or go back through our archives and catch up on any you've missed. They're all there for you to stream and download for free. Anyway, stay safe and stay healthy out there. And see you soon, I hope. Bye for now.